Welcome back or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and in this episode, we're talking with Paul Huddle, the Senior Director of Global Trail Running Operations for the Ironman Group. Beyond that, Paul is a former elite triathlete. He got a silver buckle at the 1997 Western States 100. He's been a race director, and he's worked extensively in endurance sports media. In this conversation, we talk about the ongoing controversy surrounding one of the Ironman Group's newest races, that being UTMB Whistler. We talk about Ironman Group's impression over the last two years on the North American trail running community, and we also generally talk about the directions our sport might be headed in the years to come. With that, let's get started. Paul Huddle, thank you so much for joining the Single Track Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Finn. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Well, first off, yeah, I, I I appreciate you being here, and I told you that I was probably going to monologue a little bit before we, we get started, and before I get into kind of all the questions I have for you uh, about UTMB Whistler and the direction of our sport, I, I think it's important just to say a couple things to the audience and, and the people that are listening and watching. First, I, I want to note that it was me that sought you out and not the other way around, like in the same way that I reached out to, um, to Gary Robbins for a similar conversation, I've been wanting to talk with you for about five months. So this, yeah, this comes from a place of genuine interest in the direction of our sport. And then, you know, second, um, and you know this from listening to recent episodes, but I, I certainly fall in the camp of trail runners who are sympathetic to what Gary went through and um, what Corinne Malcolm went through and, and some of the other uh, issues that have that have cropped up for pro athletes navigating this new UTMB Ironman partnership. But but that said, um, even if there are people, myself included, who don't change their minds based on this conversation, I was telling you this offline, like I strongly believe in the marketplace of ideas and, you know, creating opportunities for everyone to be heard. And I would get... And, and this is why I really wanted to have the conversation. I would get very nervous about the long-term trajectory of our sport if things in the media ever got like paternalistic and, and people lost access to important conversations. So at the end of the day, my interest is having this conversation because I care about integration. I care about reconciliation. And um, what I promised you today is there's no gotchas. There's no playing to a certain constituency um, I just want to have a conversation that, you know, informs and, and educates our, our community. And so, yeah, I, I appreciate you being here. That was a long way to way of saying, I appreciate you being here. Well, thanks. I, I'm the same. I mean, I listen, I listen to your podcast. I listen to free trail. I read all the stuff and I really enjoy it. And I think you guys all do a really good job and we're lucky to have such not not just people who are incredibly knowledgeable about the sport, but people who are incredibly passionate about the sport. Because um, mm -hmm. it's it's not. I'm guessing you're you're not a millionaire yet, um, and, and I feel like you, you know between you and Dylan, some of the others, you guys do an amazing job, and it's really appreciated. Because I, you know, we we certainly didn't have this back in the day. I mean, I used to wait. I used to religiously wait for my copy of Velo News, you know, back in the early '80s to read about races that happened two months before. And it's it's really cool these days to be able to have such real time access to information. I'm not even a thousandaire yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you know what? And, and, I'll, and I'll tell you what: if you like listening to this stuff and you listen to this regularly. 
I, I'm going to go ahead and, and pimp it. I, I went ahead and, and subscribed. I don't know whenever it was. I, I paid the money because I just feel like you guys work really hard for not a whole lot. So, you know, it's like NPR. If you like listening to something, it doesn't take a lot to really help, you know. So anyway. And, and you've done the media stuff too. Like you worked with, with was it Bob Babbitt at, yeah. at certain points in the past couple of decades on the try side? Oh yeah. Yeah. I worked with Bob for about 20 years. We had a radio show every Sunday night um, that we used to go down to the studios at 690 in, um, in, in San Diego. And they used a antenna that was down in Tijuana. So that thing was like this just absolute, I don't know, megawatt blowtorch that got all the way across the country at that time of night on a Sunday. Who else is listening at night? Right. But it was really shocking. I'm like, Bob, here we are doing the Kramer show. You and I just talking to one another and no one listening. But it was shocking. You'd get calls from people in Kansas or wherever, you know, asking questions. So it was a lot of fun. And he got, it, it was Bob's show. And Bob, as if you know Bob, he's he's a connector. And man, he knew anybody yeah. and everybody. And he got some amazing people on that show. It was a lot of fun. Very cool. Well, yeah. Uh, starting with UTMB Whistler, I, I did, um, I wrote a couple notes for this episode because I wanted to make sure I got like quotes and timelines correct. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you a very consolidated timeline that I wrote down. And once I'm done, I'd love for you to either uh, corroborate it, add to it, modify it in any way you see fit. But sure. uh, the first bullet point is you approach Gary in the fall of 2022 to start an acquisition conversation about Squamish, one of his other races. At that same time, there's about 20 other ongoing similar worldwide uh, meetings happening to expand the UTMB World Series. Um, in January, for reasons that I, I think are irrelevant to these uh, circumstances, you pause all those conversations. A couple weeks later, February 11th, Gary makes a public announcement about the parting of ways between Wham and Whistler. Gary says that you know he had been ghosted for months about this uh, this whole deal. He thinks that there was probably somebody in the background at Whistler who was stalling, and that he was being silently pushed out in favor of some other partner like an Ironman. Uh, soon after, Ironman reaches out because of their prior relationship there in the triathlon scene and because of this new void and like an eagerness to have an event there. When you enter the scene, from what I gather, you go to the city first at some time in March 23. This is apparently backed up by email documentation, uh, local organizations like Tourism Whistler and the resort municipality of Whistler. They corroborate this as well. And then I think it's in May of 2023 when you start engaging in talks and negotiations with Vale Whistler. Um, in October, you notify Gary about what's going to happen. A day or two later, you announce to um, the public that, that UTMB Whistler is going to happen. And that's sort of when all hell breaks loose on social media. I know there were some, the, some finer points that I probably glossed over, but is, is that an accurate timeline? Is there anything you would add to that? Yeah, and it's it's um, it's great that we're talking about that right now because we've been talking about this exact thing for the last week and a half. Um, Michelle and Catherine Paletti reached out to Gary and team, and were able to get a conversation with them this past weekend. And this this is I think really fortuitous because that this was one of the things that I struggled with because I wasn't able to be in contact directly with these guys. Great guys, by the way, um, and the the upshot was we're not they didn't agree with the timeline and i'm like what do they not agree with the timeline about and so i looked back and the only thing in what she said well there was a couple things so 
everything you said was correct. The first contact with Resorts Municipality of Whistler was, like you said, through a previous contact in the decade that we had been there with Ironman Canada. Um, and that happened, I think, on the 14th of February, about four days after or three or four days after um, the Instagram post that Gary said we're leaving, we're leaving Whistler and never coming back. Um, so, so that was February 14th. That was not in March, but March was after the application had been reviewed by Resorts Municipality of Whistler and con they connected with tourism. That was the first sort of contact with them and, and Keith McGonigal, our vice president who held the relationships there. And from there, the first official meeting that they then said, hey, let's let's get all the stakeholders in one place. And so I believe that was a team's call in June. And that would have been Resorts Municipality of Whistler, Tourism and Whistler Blackcomb. Mm -hmm. So that was the June was really the the start of the meetings. Okay. Um, and, and then it went from there. But I want to go back to January. January, yes, exactly what you said happened on our side. Um, and my recollection was calling and, and this is what I've been going through because when they said, you know, they didn't agree with the timeline through the conversation recently with Catherine and Michelle, I, I literally couldn't sleep that night. I got up the next day and I went through phone records going back to that time. And I did not have a phone record of, you know, I, I've been talking with Jeff and had his phone number and looked it up. I'm like, I did not have a phone conversation yeah. with him. So either I dreamed it or I had this conversation on teams, whatever. So that piece is, could be incorrect. Um, okay. So. Yeah. yeah. Cause the, the, and this is, I run far did a bit of reporting where I think they did possibly interview you and Keats. I, yes. I, maybe, maybe Gary was interviewed as well. As I was scrolling through the comments section of that article, Gary actually makes a comment and he does make a challenge to the timeline in that comment section where he says that when you were having that Squamish conversation, there were internal documents that were not received by your team until March of 2023. So about a month after yep. he made that announcement to pause wham and that Correct. Uh, you didn't inform his team about the halting of acquisitions until May, which would challenge that January date. Correct. Are, are, are these points, are they, are they true? Or are they false? Yes, they're true. Okay. Okay. So that would but, be like an update to the time. I will say the part that is false and it's still, you know, I, I, I would love to find, you know, who he's referencing when he says that somebody from Iron Man was talking to Whistler before, you know, before any of this, that there was never a conversation about trail with anyone in Whistler until February 14th. And there was never a conversation with Vale or Whistler Blackcomb until June. So, yeah, I was just going to say there's, there's, there's probably going to be people in the audience who um, will still wonder if there were back channel processes or yeah. any type of evidence that would suggest before February 2023, uh, Iron Man was putting the pieces together to get something ready for, you know, um, that uh, May project and October announcement. And it sounds like from what you just said, uh, you would, you, you would go on record saying that that is not the case. There's no, there is no evidence and there would be no evidence. Correct. Yeah. And, and I think the one person who would know who, you know, we've spoken at length about it is Keats. I mean, you know, it, yes, it, it's Iron Man. We are representing Iron Man, but there's probably three people I can think of who could have had that conversation and none of them did. So, you know, I, I, I am as eager as anybody to find out that information. Cause yeah. 
Quick break to thank our partner, Knack, for supporting this episode. With their complete nutrition approach, Knack makes my favorite trail running fuel, and whether your preferred form is a bar, a puree, drink mix, or waffle, they've got it all. You've seen them making some really cool moves in recent weeks, including working with Western States champion Adam Peterman and Gary Robbins' Coast Mountain Trail Running Series, and with races like the Canyons 100K, Hard Rock 100, and the Squamish 50 on the near and longer-term horizons this spring and summer, they have you covered. Head over to their website and check out their nutrition app for each of these events where you can uh, select your race, your goal finish time, your training volume, sweat profile, and product preferences, among other data. And it's going to give you back an interactive race day nutrition target broken down by each aid station on the course. It is awesome. Additionally, if you're interested in trying out their products, use code SINGLETRACK15 at checkout for 15% off your next order. And with that, let's get back to the show. You know, I think one of the one of like the interesting parts to all this is buy-in from local community. And as I was researching for this episode, it was interesting that before you went to Whistler Blackholm in your timeline, you actually went to a lot of like the local economic development organizations to start thinking hypothetically about what would happen if UTMB Whistler was installed here. When you did speak to those local community stakeholders, like the people at Tourism Whistler, what was their take on your ambition to put on a race? Like, were they saying, I think you should pump the brakes because of the history of Gary's races here? Did they kind of buy into the whole definitive statement that he made? We're like, we're we're done doing work here. Like walk us through those conversations if you can. So that is a good question. And that is something, honestly, I can't speak to because I wasn't the person having those conversations. And, And that may sound evasive. It's definitely not. Um, I'm representing the global side, so I'm representing and working on things globally. And yes, Whistler would be one of those global um, things to work on, but I also work through our regions and our regional team. And in this case, again, our vice president of operations for Ironman in North America is Keats McGonigal. And luckily enough, he was the guy who had been the race director and worked with Whistler for Ironman Canada throughout those years. And he was the one that was having those conversations. I can tell you, I certainly heard nothing negative and everything was positive. People were, you know, in terms of the local businesses, et cetera, I think like any community, they're excited to bring an event that's going to bring, you know, people from all over to experience their community, you know, both from just a simply event perspective, but also probably from an economic perspective as well. This is, um, this is probably, well, this is definitely a hypothetical, but, and I'm just trying to think of like alternative circumstances here, but what would have happened on your side, hypothetically, if Gary had used different language and said that he was pausing Wham instead of pulling out permanently, would, would a change in language there um, have still counted as an event void in your mind? And would you have still gone forward regardless of pause versus permanent? Or was it because it was permanent? That's a great question. I mean, personally, I probably still would have asked if I had a relationship in Whistler like Keats did and would have said, hey, just check in and see. Um, I think the my biggest lesson from this is that absolutely in, you know, hindsight is is a is a is a easy thing to talk about, you know, um, for obvious reasons. But I would have definitely you know, said, Hey, are you guys really out? But when you read that post, 
it wasn't just we're out. It was like emphatically yeah. we out of here and we are never coming back. And so that felt like, you know, something happened in the relationship and don't know what happened. Don't know why, but I'm not sure I really want to approach that with, and, it, and again, we weren't talking to Whistler Blackcomb. We were talking to the municipality, to the community who said, here's the event application, go fill it out. And then we'll, we'll review it. And then we'll, we'll talk. And that's, that's the, the same procedure we, we took. The other side of this, and this is, you know, for, for better or for worse, all conversations that we have, both with, you know, a, a private entity like Gary and, and Jeff, or when we start a conversation with the municipality, those are confidential. And we really feel strongly that we need to keep those confidential. You know, it's, it's a matter of respect for the conversations we're having with each of these entities. And at the same time, though, I, I think, you know, I, you know, in retrospect, we were already having the conversation with Gary. So it would make a lot of sense to just go, Hey, are you guys really out? Even though when you read the language of that post, you're like, boy, they're not only out they're They're like, they, they don't ever want to come back for whatever reason. So, yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think one of the reasons why I felt strongly in favor of Gary's circumstances was because of, uh, Whistler Blackcomb's role in this, like to me, just seeing the timeline, it, 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 it yeah. seemed to me like they very clearly wanted Wham out. Like they expedited that permitting process for Everesting, but they left kind of Wham in the dark when they did get their approval process instructions from Whistler. It wasn't until January of the event year. And they didn't sort of let that traditional handshake agreement go on where they allow them to complete the process while allowing them to also market the event and open up registration. So those were the things that kind of led me into Gary's corner and just feeling very suspicious about the whole thing. I know you can't comment on that because that's a separate organization, but what I would love for you to comment on is like, I saw Gary's statement or one of his statements after the fact, which is that his Ironman relationship is beyond repair but he would consider working with Whistler again. And I'm curious, given that it seems like, from my perspective, Whistler is more to blame here. Why is Iron Man catching more flack than Whistler Blackcomb, in your opinion? Yeah, I think, I think, and this is a really important distinction. I think, you know, we, we talked to the resorts municipality of Whistler and they said, please make sure that when you say Whistler, you're differentiating between Whistler, the municipality, or Whistler Blackcomb, you know, Vale Resorts, you know, and, and so when you when you just said, you know, Whistler, I think you're referring to Whistler Blackcomb. Whistler Blackcomb, correct. Correct. Yeah. And and yeah, it's a it's a it's a good point. And it was something that we certainly didn't anticipate or expect was, and this is this is obviously local knowledge that there is clearly um, some animosity and negativity around Whistler Black Home slash Vale Resorts since that um, company purchased, you know, the property there. And we immediately got, you know, tagged with that in the same way they probably got tagged with us for whatever negativity surrounds Iron Man as a company. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, I didn't know that. I hadn't read that. Um, but yeah. Um. I got to pull this up. I, 
I have one quote here from Gary that I want to read off. And he said this in the Iron Far uh, report about sort of the prospect of future coexistence in our sport between bigger and smaller race entities. He said, quote, I am leaning towards no, it is not possible to coexist when you have publicly traded companies with billion dollar budgets that have to answer to shareholders. Everything comes down to the bottom line of how to monopolize things the most. That's just reality. There are fantastic people within the Vale Resorts organization, and I'm sure there are good people at Ironman as well, but they are faceless organizations for the most part, and they have to make decisions that appease their shareholders. When that's the case, you can't possibly make decisions in the best interest of the communities in which you're operating, end quote. When you hear this comment, or maybe when you read it, um, what are or were your thoughts? Didn't read it, but that's, I think, probably a common um, feeling about any corporate entity. You could <laughs> go down the line. Um, the thing I think it doesn't get right is, A, the billion-dollar budget. I would love to have a billion-dollar budget. <laughs> Definitely don't have that. B, we're privately held. Um, we're owned by advance. Um, not that that necessarily changes the mentality of anybody. Um, and it's, it's a group of people who I love working with, who really care and love the sport. And in terms of size, I mean, in, in whatever it's been two and a half years, we are now at five events, six events in North America, five in the U S. Um, I'm not certain on the numbers. Um, but I think, you know, Air Vipa has 60, some events granted they're mostly in the Southwest, but they are all over the place. I don't think there's anything wrong with. Um, Gary's company, who I think has seven events, and there's a lot of other, you know, companies around around the country who have multiple events with growing their business and, you know, trying to grow the sport. And I really strongly feel that that's what we're doing. We're trying to benefit the sport as a whole, and I absolutely think we can coexist. There's never going to be a. I, I don't. I don't see how any single entity monopolizes the sport of ultra running. I just don't see it. I mean, I think there's currently 7,000 plus events globally. I think maybe four or 5,000 in the U.S. alone, probably more than more than 7,000 globally. So I don't I don't I don't see how that works. And I think from a growth perspective, yes, we want to have more events. Um, and if you just look at the map of where our events currently are in the U.S., it's pretty obvious that the next place to try to get some events is Midwest, Northeast, Southeast, you know, try and give people the opportunity to not have to travel to the West, maybe not have to go run at altitude in really technical races like Speedgoat and still have an opportunity to qualify and get to Chamonix. And I think that's, that's our goal right, right now. And, I, I'm sure the question will come, you know, well, how fast do you want to grow? And I would say if we could add two events a year, that would be great. You know, for how long? I don't know, the next three to five years. That doesn't feel like astronomical crazy growth and that we're taking over the sport. And I would also say that the race teams who have partnered with us so far are the heart and soul of ultra running. And we partnered with them and they partnered with us because we came to an agreement and we all agreed that this was going to be a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, whether it's, you know, Chaz and his team in Auburn or Carl in, in Snowbird or Clark out in, out in Grindstone, you know, in Virginia, 
these are all these are all amazing people with amazing teams and amazing communities that you know we love working with and being a part of and and so you know i often and I've, i think i've talked to you about this before and i've talked to other people about this it's really interesting the dichotomy between the world of social media and or the internet versus the on the ground world of events and it's so different and so it's it's such a relief to go to events and be a part of those things with the volunteers and the runners and you know everyone who who is a part of those because it's all really positive i i have yet to have a negative conversation at an event but the stuff i see on social media which is i get it it's understandable um but you know we do our best to try to call and talk to everybody who we can or offer to talk to everybody who we can to try to just say, Hey, you know, we, we love the sport and we want what we do to lift it just, and we're, we're cheering for and pulling for every single other event out there. That's how I feel about hard rock. Um, in the many years before I got to be there myself, it was total Armageddon for that race on social media. I think for some, from, for some justified reasons, but it was Armageddon. It was social media warfare. The whole process for the existence of the event gets picked apart, scrutinized pretty thoroughly, but then you get on the ground at the race like I did last year. And it's kind of like utopia for ultra running. Like all of the best of the human condition is on display and the volunteers are amazing. The runners are amazing. Dale, the race organization, race organizer, I should say, is sort of like that area of the country's gift to humanity. He's great. He's selfless. And so, yeah, I think that is something to consider. As, as, we, as we spend more of our lives online and, and digitally, and we increasingly deal with like this whole like loneliness epidemic, not that I want to go there in this conversation, but <laughs> as, as, as we steer away from less and less real world interactions, it is, it is important, I think, to... Um, see how well your in-person experience at an event, at a race, and with people stacks up to how things are being portrayed online. I think that is very important. Yeah, it, it's been one of the biggest eye-openers for me. And and I think I told somebody this. I really, it, it, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure Gary and Jeff have had a lot of sleepless nights. I know I certainly have. I mean, this has been a, a gut punch for everybody, I'm sure. Um, but I really... You know, you, you hear about the negative um, things that social media can do, especially for kids. And it never hit me as hard as it did when this thing, when this whole thing went down, because I felt very personally damaged by it. And, and I, you know, I'm sure no one cares, but it really brought that home. And I thought, wow, I, I cannot imagine being a kid in high school right now with social media. You know, I mean, high school's hard enough, right? but it's been a long time and I, and I really enjoyed high school, but I'm just like, wow, this must be really, really rough because, you know, with bullying and everything else to be able to do that in a more impersonal, but more hurtful way almost is, is, was really um, shocking to me. I want to, yeah, I want to come back to like the money and, and the growth piece on this in a second, but I want to, I want to stay on this kind of like philosophical thread because and it's actually, it's something that I've wanted to ask you about for a while. Like I know we, we text back and forth fairly often, but a lot of people, um, sometimes myself included, we think about Iron Man, and increasingly we think this about UTMB two as being sort of like you've used the phrase abstractions of power and greed instead of human beings like yourself that are that are behind the wheel and trying to 
steward what they think is a great vision for the sport. And I have to imagine when that label gets put on your work and your brand, it's incredibly painful for you. It's incredibly painful for the people on your team and the people that are on the ground working these events, volunteering, et cetera. Um, and what do you, what more do you think about that? And like, what, what do you think leads people to think that way about these brands? Like, how does it get to this point? Um, look, I, I, in the case of Whistler, I, I take, you know, responsibility for that because I was part of that and it was communication and, you know, Gary, I think reacted as he, as I probably would have reacted in the same, in the same shoes, you know, but it's just, I think for, you know, social media magnifies everything and and allows people to, to not be face to face and talk and have a conversation and fair enough, you know, um, but it, it does, yeah, it does impact everybody. And that was one of the things that, that really got me was I'm like, oh my God, you know, Michelle and Catherine who have built UTMB and Chamonix and then, you know, been sort of the drivers behind this whole thing in terms of the values of what UTMB is. And it just, I, I felt terrible for them and I, all of the teams, you know, and, and everybody was impacted in some way, you know, talking to our race team in Kuhlman and, and if you know those guys, I mean, salt of the earth, just amazing guys who put that event on and, and hearing that there was negativity aimed at, at those guys, I was just like, man, you know, but at the same time, I'm, you know, I, I don't know what else to do other than try to do what we're doing right now, talk about it and, and own, own it and, and be as transparent and honest as I can be. And, you know, and then put our heads down and try and deliver great experiences for our runners and our communities and our volunteers. And, you know, that's, that's where the focus needs to remain. And that's what we're trying to do. And, and yes, we are trying to, you know, talk more and be more open. And like, like I said, I think both Keats and I and Brian and everybody in North America have really tried to be available to anybody who will talk to us, including to the point where our, our um, social media manager said, Hey, would you mind if I DM this guy, will you talk to him? He's just being anything we post. He just, he just is hammering us. I'm like, yeah, of course, you know, and had an hour and a half conversation. And I think it maybe have made a friend, you know? So, you know, I, I think we've, we've lost the, um, whatever you want to call it, the art of discourse or the ability to just meet, meet one another and, and instead sit back and just, you know, it's, it's really easy to criticize as you know, and I'm, I'm sure you've gotten your share. I'm, I'm a talking head. <laughs> right. Right. And, and I listen, I've sent you things. I, I hope I was never rude or anything, but I, I just want to clear up misinformation. So when I hear something, I want to immediately send you a text or a email and say, Hey, thanks. You know, as I always do, thanks for what you do. Um, but I just want to make sure we're clear that this information is available. Here's where you can find it. And, you know, things like the elite list, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we're working on and really trying to improve. And it, it takes a minute, right? I think we're two years into this and yeah. you, we're taking all of the advice and we're taking all of the feedback and we're watching and we're really trying to make it a better experience for, for the athletes and, and, and for the media and everyone involved. And it's not going to happen overnight, but I really feel like we're making that effort and we've made some good progress, whether it's adaptive athletes or, you know, working with PTRA, all the things, right. And we're, and that those conversations are ongoing every week and, and we're working on it. 
Well, on, on a side note, and this is actually for, for anybody that's ever reached out to the show, either in praise or criticism, mostly criticism, but we, we do pride ourselves on this show trying to be as open as possible, as receptive as possible to criticism. And I, and I do hope that um, like in our tonality and how we engage, there is an assumption that like there is, you know, as you've done, as others have done, there is like a psychological safety to to reach out and say, actually, here's something you didn't consider. And um, by doing that, it only strengthens the relationship and doesn't like, you know, make myself or anyone else involved in the show go inward and, you know, retreat to us uh, like an echo chamber. So and I appreciate that. But um, one thing, and again, this is maybe it's a stereotype, but this this was sort of the the narrative that I received and that others in the trail community received a few years back when Ironman was entering. And it was basically like in its own sport in triathlon, Ironman created this ecosystem, which involved, you know, buying out, stamping out and starting other races in the sport until, you know, people like myself in the media, brands and advertisers and athletes recognized that like Ironman is the only game in town and they have to play along. And the, the second part of that narrative was that it was going to be reproduced in the trail world and we better watch out. We better organize around the local grassroots, et cetera, and, and protect the sport. And it could be the case that that's just a, a not true narrative. And I, and I want to give you the opportunity to rebuttal there and say like, you know, what did I get wrong? What did we get wrong? Why is that not actually the story and why should the trail community not be worried yeah, that's a great that's a great question, and and I hear it all the time. And having been involved in triathlon since 1980, <laughs> I I remember very clearly how everything evolved and how upsetting it was at, at different points in that journey. And then you know being a being a coach in the sport, and then you know as you said, you know as working very much in as anyone I think does who wants to be a part of the endurance sports industry, you have to do a thousand things to get by and barely get by most of the time. Um, so from racing to coaching, to media, to the operational side and that whole journey, you know, through the eighties into the nineties and then more on the operational side in the two thousands. Yeah. It, it's, it's probably a lot different mainly because triathlon was so brand new and, and so different and, Yes, I would say for sure, Ironman, and especially once um, the president of the organization at the time, Ben Furtick, had the idea to create a new brand called 70.3, which we all referred to as Half Ironman at the time, and and create, you know, when 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 I when Ironman first started having qualification, like anybody could just go enter that race, believe it or not, back in the day, right? You could just enter and go do Ironman. And then it evolved to the point where it, it, you know, it got too crowded and you had a limitation on the amount of athletes you could have on the pier, especially that transition area. And so I believe at that time, the organization started um, selling entries. So if you're the Mrs. T Chicago triathlon, you could buy 50 entries and allocate those across your age groups. But those entries cost, I don't know what they cost at that time, $1,000, $1,500, whatever it was. But that was the beginning of that system. And, you know, at the time, Ironman was mainly a licensing company, right? It didn't own events. I think it owned the World Championship in Kona, but it didn't own events per se. 
right? It was licensed out. Uh, there were there were licensees. I worked for a guy named Graham Fraser who held the license in North America. And when I started, I don't think there were any races in the U.S. It was Ironman Canada. Um, so we were part of the teams that built those initial, whatever it was, eight to 10 races. It was eight races. Um, Ironman Arizona, Lake Placid, Florida, Wisconsin, Coeur d'Alene, et cetera. And that was a really great, great time. And then when Ironman decided, you know, when they were um, purchased by private equity by Providence and stopped renewing licenses, um, that's sort of when it really started to grow. And, and I don't know that, you know, I, I think initially, especially in that first 10 year period for me from 2000 to 2010, I heard a lot of what I'm hearing now and it's going to hurt small races. And in fact, it, I think really helped small races. It grew the sport in a big way. I mean, when an Ironman came to Tempe in Arizona, there's plenty of triathlons. I mean, that's sort of where I cut my teeth in, in triathlon. And a lot of those races were still in existence. And those races really blew up because people want to train and do triathlon because they want to eventually do an Ironman. And I think a similar thing um, will happen here. I think the thing that prevents an organization like UTMB from whatever you want to call it, growing to that point that, that you see now with, with Ironman and triathlon is the fact that there's so many races, you know, it, they're, they're, how I just don't see it. How, how are they going away? And then how are, are we going to have the ability to, to permit, you know, you know what permitting is like in the U S I think, right. I don't think it's possible. You know, I, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I, I do think we can hopefully get to events that are maybe 10, 12 events across the country that allow people from a geographic perspective to relatively easily get somewhere where they can qualify to go to, to Chamonix. Um, but I, I just, I, I'm really, it's hard for me to envision and I guess that's going to be someone much younger in the future who maybe envisions it, but I, I don't see it. And I think a lot of the iconic races that are, are in the sport right now, I think they're going to be there in the future because how do you replace hard rock? How do you replace Western States? How do you replace Vermont and AC and Wasatch? I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't yeah. see it. Also, thank you to rabbit for supporting the show. Rabbit is the official apparel partner of Singletrack, and you've heard me talk about them over the past two months, but I have become almost an everyday user of their new Cocoon 2.0 product. It's this advanced sweatshirt with a built-in turtleneck that pulls up into a secure hood and breathable face mask. It's got thumbnails and watch windows to keep your hands warm without a fuss, and a water-resistant finish and fleecy interior for the most comfortable protection. I wear it on my runs. I wear it while ski mountaineering. It's the real deal. Um, winter's here, you know, so go check it out. If you need to upgrade your kit, grab one and use code single track 20 at checkout when purchasing for 20% off your order. If you were, if you were on a debate stage with somebody who was more cynical about Ironman's growth story in triathlon, what do you anticipate they would try to pick apart about the story you just told from like the eighties to now? In terms of Ironman's growth? Yeah, and sort of like the welfare of the grassroots and independent races, and whether they were still able to. Yeah. Okay. So here's, yeah, this reminds me. Yeah, you said stamp out, and I've heard takeover or you know references like that to events. 
I, I was able to be a part of the growth of the sport in Europe from 2014 to 2017. And every race that, that we either um, developed from nothing to becoming a 70.3 or a full distance Ironman event, or events that um, we acquired that were existing events, the events that we acquired or were existing events came to us. We didn't go to them. Mm. And, and that's often the case. It's, it's not. And then the events that we started de novo or from the ground up, those are communities that came to us or communities that we went to and said, Hey, are you interested? So it was never a case of, it's never been in my experience, a case of taking over. I mean, you don't take over speed goat. You talk to Carl and see if he's interested and he and his team are still the ones who put that race on, you know, that's the essence of all of those races in triathlon as well. I mean, when we acquired the one acquisition I was directly a part of and worked a lot with that team was our Ironman and our 70.3 in Barcelona. And that was, they very much wanted to be a part of Ironman. I mean, they were dying to be a part of Ironman and I, I can reference some really funny stories with um, the brothers who are now full-time employees with us who love the sport and, you know, so I think it's a miss. I don't, I don't know how to, you know, get people to understand that it's not taking over. It's, it's, it's people wanting to be a part of it is typically what, what happens, but, you know, and yeah, we're, we're definitely interested in new, um, new areas or new locations where it, it could be a good fit. But if you're talking about any of the events that we have currently, the five North American races, those were all, that's that's what I would call a partnership. Yeah, and and that all makes sense to me. I'm just I'm just trying to like anticipate people that yeah. are in my ear that are saying, "But what about this?" And like one of those, "But what about this?" is is like what happens if and when you can't partner and a partnership strategy is not successful. What do you resort to at that point? One of the first things I have to imagine is building your own supply. And when you build your own supply, that's when you have to start competing regionally and on the same weekends or near them with a lot of these established, you know, grassroots local races. And then you start seeing direct competition. Got it. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. And, and so one, one thing I would say is we have talked to a lot of people who have said no thanks and, and, you know, and have talked to some of those folks. Um, And that's great. What we always say is no problem. We love what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. And, you know, I mean, if someone doesn't want to partner with you, what do you do? You just say, great, you know, you guys have a great event and good luck. Um, but in terms of what do we do? Yeah, we, I think, you know, just like anybody, I, I, I'm guessing Jamil has been through this where he has acquired events and maybe there are other events within the area who are like, oh, whoa, what's going on here? You know, I mean, I, I get it. It's Jamil. It's not Iron Man, but like I said, Jamil has a has a really great business model, and he's he's doing I think what anybody's doing. I, I um, what would we do? We're doing what we're doing right now. We're we're trying to find locations where we can have an event that works for what I would say is a UTMB World Series worthy location and running experience, and that's not an easy thing to find, right? And in doing that we absolutely are always going to consider who are the other events in the region? How can we help them? How can we be a part of the community? So, yep. 
Yeah. And I also, I should state for the record, I am, I am a huge proponent of competition because I, I do believe that, for example, if events are, are competing against each other, that only raises the product, the end product for the consumer and makes the sport better in a lot of ways. So I don't want to come across as being anti-competitive here. I'm just thinking about like, what are no, the ways of Ironman? Yeah. yeah, you're trying to think of the, the folks who will have yeah. those questions, which is fair. Um, so yeah, you know, you, you talked about sort of growing up in the sport of, uh, you know, Ironman triathlon back in the eighties. This was a, a couple of months back, but I, I did a bunch of research on you. I didn't realize that you were training with Mark Allen on a lot of days and you, and you top 10 at Conan in a couple of years. And, um, I even sent you a text saying, you know, Paul, I didn't realize that you ran Western States back in 1997. So you've dabbled in our scene well before it kind of like started to approach like mainstream, uh, awareness. And then you, you were a surfer too. And, and the, the reason I bring all this up is because when I think about all of those sports, um, these turf wars inevitably happen between like the, the OG core of a sport and, and the new entrance. It's like the grassroots versus the pros. And you've had experiences in all these sports at all of those inflection points. And do you think generally it's, it's, it's reasonable for the core participants to worry about sort of like the threat to their community way of life. And, and is there a universal like right way to navigate these eras of a sport towards um, like, like harmony? Man, that, that is, that is the question of the year. I think, um, you know, I, I, I come from sort of the OG world of triathlon and there's still some of those OG folks who think it's a complete shambles now. And it's like, it's all ruined. Um, and then I talk to newcomers who are so jazzed and so just hooked on it and it's so great for them. And you can just see it and feel it. You're like, yeah, I remember what that felt like. Um, so I don't know that there, that there is going to ever be this complete harmonization in any endurance sport, or you mentioned surfing. I mean, that's a, that's a great example. I mean, I, I, when I moved out to San Diego in 80, 85, 86, all I wanted to do was surf and I was awful. I got my ass kicked for five years before I could somewhat competently, you know, go out on a four foot day and, and, and know what to do and how to do it and, and just enjoy it. Um, but you know, it, it wasn't a very inviting culture, you know what I mean? Out in the lineup, especially, um, and there wasn't a lot of, um, there were a few, there were some really nice people too, who really took you under their wing and tried to help you. And I think that's the same in any sport. I remember that from road cycling in Tucson. I remember that from, you know, even to a degree running a little bit, you know, I ran at Arizona as a walk on and that was one of the best experiences I ever had. Cause we was like, I think there must've been 15, 20 walk-ons. I mean, those, those practices were, you know, 30 people deep. And, and a bunch of us knew there was no chance we were ever going to travel or score a point because we had an amazing team at that time. Um, and I think probably still do, but yeah, the, the, I, I see exactly now what I saw in triathlon in the, in the eighties, I think it's, it's normal and, and I understand it. And I, I, I would be probably right in there, <laughs> you know what I mean? But I also see change and I, I don't think things are ever not going to change and they're ever not going to evolve. And I will always, you know, treasure moments in sport when I feel like I have the best of what it had to offer at that time. But does that mean it's not still great in triathlon? Again, 
There are brand new people coming into these sports all day, every day. And that's the best part of all of this is it's an amazing lifestyle. I don't care what endurance sport you do. It's good for you. It's good for the people around you. And I, that's, I think what keeps me coming back. I mean, I left Ironman for three years. I was disillusioned just like a lot of people are in this sport right now when we were brought bought by private equity, but I came back because I felt like instead of sitting on the outside and complaining, go back in and try to try to make it better however you can. And, and that that's sort of been why I've been back. And there've been moments in the last six months where I'm like, what am I doing? I'm like completely failing here. Um, but the people you work with and the things that you know you're trying to do are what keep you going. And sure. yeah, I, I, it's a really good question, Finn. I don't know what your take on it is because I'd love to hear your side of it. I know some of your background as well. I mean, the things that inspired me to endurance sports, you know, back in the late seventies, early eighties was Abibi Bikila. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that name, but Olympic marathon champion, barefoot in Rome. Um, and hearing about Western States and hearing about Ironman and that, you know, there was a moment where I was, you know, in my, in my late teens where I'm like, I want to do three things before I die. I want to ride across the country. I want to run Western States and I want to do an Ironman and, you know, be careful what you wish for. It was, you know, I got kind of stuck in the triathlon side and I've told people, I feel like I've wasted a lot of my running miles in triathlon because God, I would love to do something like UTMB or some of the races that I've seen out there you know, Sierras and Alls. I mean, there's countless races that just look absolutely dreamlike. And I wish I had saved my chassis for that, but I didn't. And I'm not disappointed because I was excited about what I was doing and I got to do Western. You are the, the, so I've done, this is actually, by the way, this is episode 300 of the podcast. And in, in 300 episodes, you are only the second person as a guest to ever ask me the host a question. The other one was Mike Foote, who uh, organizes the rut up in Oh, Montana. yeah. I so, know of Mike. He's a legend. And that yeah, Mike's a legend. But I, I don't know. There's something interesting psychologically about uh, kind of turning the tables. My, again, this is, I'm still in a discovery phase for this question. But when I leave the sports world and I just take a global perspective on tolerance, I think about all of the places worldwide that have grown the fastest and become the most interesting. And they were always these centers of like a lot of economic tolerance and, and function, like, like the Florence, Italy's of the world during the Renaissance and New York city. Um, you know, when, uh, and it, it's, exactly. So I, I sort of take this view of extreme tolerance and trust that all of these new permutations of intrigue and value will be created when all sorts of cultures just come together, like that classic sort of like melting pot equation. So I get very suspicious um, in any circumstances of like a, a core group saying, um, in the first version of the sport, we totally got it right. And we should just abide by those customs and rules. I get very uh, skeptical and nervous of that. I'm more excited about what happens when six, eight, 10 subcultures come together and they interact and have a cultural baby. What comes from that? I get way more excited by that. So I kind of lean into the tolerance angle. That's, that's where I'm at currently. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. I think tolerance is a, is a great word for this conversation. And 
Yeah, it, it, it's it's interesting to have experienced things, you know, up close and personally on a group ride or, you know, out on the water or, you know, in, in whatever scenario and, and how it evolves. And, you know, I had a I had a good friend back in the day <clears throat> I used to race with named Rob Mackle. Um, it was a great swimmer. He used to come out of the water first every time. I think he swam at Indiana for Doc Councilman. But, you know, we, we talked about the sport and he at that time was sponsored by, I don't, can't remember, you know, at the time you're sponsored and you're, you're getting $3 and a sticker, you know, and you're like, oh my God, I'm a pro. But, but he, 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 we were out on a ride one day and he goes, you know, and I never looked at it this way as, as a, as a quote pro at that time, but he was very helpful and accepting and tolerant of anybody and everybody and would talk to everybody and try and help everybody out. And he, his, his philosophy was sort of, you know, it's not just about representing my sponsor well or myself well, but anybody that I can motivate and get fired up about this sport, it's not just going to be better for me and my sponsor, but it's better for everybody, you know? And, And I thought, wow, that, that really struck me at that time. That some, you know, in our youth, when all you're thinking about is, you know, going as fast as you can, all those, you know, sort of myopic concerns as an athlete, that he would be thinking that way. You know what I mean? And it really struck me. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? I want to be like that. I want to try and be like that. So I, I do think it's important that we're all part of that. And, you know, yes, I work for the devil. I, I, everyone thinks that, you know, oh, you know, you, oh God, you work for them, you know, but it's like, no, you know what I mean? I work with a great group of people who care and, and not just, you know, in our organization, but in those communities, we get that opportunity every, every time, you know, when it's a new community, it's probably the best part of the job is meeting and working with, whether it's the first responders and the police and fire and all those folks. And, in this case, in the ultra world, it's the ham operators and the search and rescue folks and amazing race race teams, event organizers, the race directors. I mean, they're mind blowingly great people. I mean, and they yeah. work really hard. I mean, you, I'm anybody who's part of this sport knows, right? These are really long events. You're generally me- awake for a minimum of 24 hours, and many of them just taking, you know, barely a nap and going 48 to 72 hours. But, and these guys are doing exactly that. And the other thing that's really impressive, sorry, I'm rambling on here. No, no, please. One of the, one of the things that really struck me my first year at Canyons was seeing Craig Thornley and Joe in the command center. And I'm like, Oh my God, these guys are like, these are the guys, these are the Western States guys. But it, 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 it clicked immediately that everybody works with everybody else. And I think that's a really, um, it's unique. It, it's, you know, yes, there, there was some of that certainly in triathlon. And I think a lot of people like to go and volunteer at other people's races. And that's how I got involved in triathlon and Ironman side was volunteering on the bike course at, at back in 2000, 2000. Yeah. At, um, at Ironman, Ironman, California in Oceanside. And, and as the guy who, <laughs> who asked us to help said, he goes, yeah, I knew you guys were pro athletes. I didn't think you'd work. So I, I wanted to test you out as volunteers. <laughs> I know I'm looking at the clock. I know we've only got maybe 20, 30 minutes left. So I'll probably ask you yeah, two, or, two or three, four more questions, maybe a little bit all over the place. But um, yeah, maybe when you think about like the acquisitions of uh, or the partnering with, you know, races like Grindstone and Speedgoat here in the, in, in the North America, um, 
what do you want to change in those circumstances and what do you want to stay the same? Like for, for, for customers to understand yeah. how these partnerships work, uh, they're probably thinking that as soon as a partnership happens with Iron Man, everything is going to get turned on its head. The event is never going to be the same, et cetera. So what changes, what stays the same? It's a great question. And um, yeah, I think the thing we want to stay the same is we want the soul of the race to remain the same. And that, that lies with the event team that has been operating that event since its inception. We want those folks to, to stay and do exactly what they're doing. What do we want to improve? We want to improve the runner experience, you know, as much as we can. Can't always necessarily do that in really overt ways. I mean, I think the biggest changes are in branding because we're a World Series. So we have World Series partners. You know, I think Hoka is probably the most obvious one. So you will see more branding and activation. And one of the beauties of working with a company like Hoka is they're I don't know if you know Chris Hollis and Richard Verney and some of the guys who are on the ground activating. They're they're also you know really passionate and and they're almost I won't say almost they are part of our operations team. I mean they're every bit out there helping us know what the conditions are like and and you know how we can improve that athlete experience and that's invaluable. A lot of times you know over the years you know having owned races and stuff you have partners sometimes they're like yeah I just want my name on the finish line arch and, and they're not really an integral part. Um, but the partners that we have are, you know, right in there with us and right in there trying to make the athlete experience better. But I would say the big differences are really that it's the branding, the activation and trying to make sure that we're standardizing a safe race, a well-marked course, you know, all the basic stuff that I think all race directors want to do is the same things that we want to do. It's the same thing that I wanted to do and why I was so passionate about the operational side of Ironman. Cause if you've been an athlete and you've been lost on a course, you understand the frustration. And I remember that first year I did Western, the lead guys turned right, like two miles up the hill and going the wrong way. And everybody's yelling at them. No, no, come back, come back. You know what I mean? But I don't know why they turned at that point or why they went off course. Um, it, you know, people are lemmings and they just follow one another. But I would say, Safety, course marking, you know, probably a consistent branding look, things like that. But at the heart of it, we just really want the runner to have a fantastic experience. And we want to work with our event teams to, you know, accentuate that. And they're already doing that. Um, we're just trying to learn from them as well, as much as, you know, maybe hopefully we, they can learn a few things from us. Um, I think we're probably at this point you know, in this sport, learning more from them and mm -hmm. all sharing ideas. I mean, we just had a conference with all of our North American event um, organizers a week and a half, two weeks ago in Boulder. And it was, it was fantastic. It was so great to get together and hear everybody's stories and, you know, talk about some of the operational things that we all care about, whether it's course marking, course clearing, volunteers, you know, all the things. I told you I was going to be all over the place in these last 30 minutes. No uh, what, what just came to mind for me was PR strategy. Uh, and, yeah. and for the record, I, I empathize with not wanting to status signal or brag about charitable efforts. Like I, yeah, I, I come from like New England where like 
the modesty piece. Like you have to almost be self-deprecating to a fault. I get that. But like, I think about the $50,000 that you guys just donated to, I think it was the Mesquite Fire mitigation on the Western States course last year. It played a huge yeah. role in making sure that that race went on. I think there is a way to distribute that message to the community without coming across as self-righteous. Um, and it makes me wonder like, can you do it that way? Like, what is your PR strategy when you think about communicating the value you provide to our, to our sport? Yeah. It's something I don't, I, you know, I, our media PR team is tiny <laughs> and they have, I think 200 plus events globally that they um, work alongside, you know, and so you can imagine it's every weekend, it's, it's all day, every day throughout the year. So they do an amazing job. Um, it, in, in the case of, um, UTMB so far, I don't feel like we've nailed it yet. We probably, you know, sometimes, um, sounded too corporate and maybe haven't really said, said anything really. Sometimes I look at it and I'm like, God, oh, we didn't really say anything there. It's like, and sure yeah. enough, you know, you hear about it. Um, but yeah, you're right. I, I feel like we've done a lot of good things in the, in the very short time we've been a part of this. And I asked this question last year toward the end of the year of all of our event directors, you know, what were you able to give back to your communities prior to partnering with us? And what has the give back been now? And the least of those was, was three times um, the give back since joining, since joining with UTMB. And, and I love that, you know, and, and like you're saying, why don't you talk about that? And I'm like you, and I think it's incumbent on any event that's, that should be, just part of the standard that's part and parcel of what you do is you give back because you are a guest in that community and those trails that you're on, you know, you're, you're a guest on those trails as well. So you want to leave that community in a better way than, than you found it. Um, but it's hard because I, I have a hard time with that. Like just personally, you know, I, my parents were very old school and it's like you, you give and you don't expect anything and you don't talk about it. And that's, that's how you should do it. Yes. I do think there's a way to message that better. And that 50,000 wasn't just us, by the way, 50,000 came from Western States, 50,000 came from Tevis. That, that was a a group of events that use those trails and that, that didn't cover it all, as you can imagine. I mean, those, fires and then the rain and there was, you know, there was a lot and, and there was a lot of man hours um, put towards that, you know, by some of the, our event teams, you know, the, the guys from Canyons, Chaz and Sean and Abby and Craig Thornley and all those guys are out there hand, hand to dirt, you know, you know, being part of that. Um, So it wasn't just us, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what the answer to that is, you know, trying to tell that story, without feeling braggy, it, it, that's, that's a tough road. And sometimes I just feel like, you know what, just shut up and, and do it. You know what I mean? It's, you know, the old shut up and run. I, <laughs> to some extent, I just feel like that shut up and put on your race and do right. it in communities. Cause yeah. And I, again, I was just, I was trying to think about this in, in as like moderate a way as possible. Cause I, I was one of the first people in full disclosure who got frustrated when, for example, I saw, the press release from UTMB basically saying, Hey, just wanted to let everyone know, like we met with Zach and Killian and that was kind of like, yes. you know, there was like seven pages. That was like the summary. <laughs> and, but, but then, but then I saw like these charitable efforts and I'm like, 
I couldn't, I had to like dig for that stuff. Yeah. I, had, I had to like ask people and that's amazing. So I just wanted to communicate that because like, I'll be the first person to, to complain and be a talking head, but I, I do want to acknowledge stuff like that, you know, when I come across it. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And, and again, I, I'm not sure if someone has a great idea on how we should brag about, you know, all the great things we're doing. I mean, everybody's doing great things. And, and I think we all just need to keep focused on, again, putting on the best experience you can and benefiting those communities and volunteer teams as much as you can. Yeah. Um, all right. Another, another thought that kind of comes to mind, there will be people listening. I'm sure who say that, you know, you Iron Man are our new entrance to the trail community and even if you're not motivated by greed and sort of like the big business playbook, uh, your perceived lack of understanding about how the sport works is problematic too. And, and maybe you have to put on, because I know you've been a race director in the past, maybe you put your, your race director sort of education hat on to answer this one. But like, what would you say to that? Like if people are less concerned about sort of the, the business strategy of Ironman, they're more worried about like, are the actors here knowledgeable? What do you say to that? We're not. <laughs> We're flat out not. I mean, I'm I'm knowledgeable somewhat, but I get more knowledge from from you and the media and the races, um, and have gotten that in the last couple of years more so than I had it prior. I mean, you know, when I did Western, it was a one and done. I just wanted to do it, and I. <laughs> I, re I remember um, Mike Morton, the guy who set the record that year in 15 hours and 47 minutes. Yeah, I remember yeah. some details, right? But, and it, it's, it, it's always mind blowing. I couldn't believe that Tim Tweetmeyer was looking, you know, like he just had dinner and was showered and dressed really nicely and congratulating me at the finish line at 3 a.m. Um, you know, there, there are things like that that I remember, but I don't know. We don't know everything and we don't pretend to know everything. But again, we want to do right by the community and, and we're learning and we're two years into this. And, you know, on the one hand, I'm not saying give us a chance, but I am saying, give us a chance. I'm, you know, we want to learn and, and yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I've seen so many, and, and I'm not saying, you know, they're all coming over, but my, my running joke, you know, cause I started as a swimmer as a kid and then ran in high school and college. And then, you know, you're a single sport athlete, you're, you're drinking beer, you're, you, then you move to triathlon. Now you're smoking weed. Then you move to ultra and adventure racing. Now you're really in the hard stuff. You're definitely <laughs> moving down the wrong path with pharmaceuticals. Right. And that's the progression that, that I, that I remember. Um, and I, I don't know that throughout that journey that I knew anything about anything when I started all of those things. And so I feel like we do have some knowledge, you know, about, trying to do our best to take care of athletes and, and make sure operationally our courses are well marked and then we have safety assets and, and all of those things. But do I know, look, I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a beard. I don't have the right flannel shirt on. I don't, I, I don't know. I'm sure that I'm a kook when it comes to ultra running, but that doesn't mean I don't love it. And, and I feel like there's a lot of people who come into the sport like that. I mean, I saw a lot of Ironman, um, logos on people at Black Canyon, you know, and are they going to be um, pariahs just because they did an Ironman and they happen to have that logo on them? I hope not. You know, they're out there to, to enjoy it and challenge themselves and have the same experience everyone else does. 
again, tolerance, you know, something you mentioned before. Yes. Um, and, and we are, we're, we're doing everything we can to learn, especially from our event teams. You know, we have well over 60 years of experience across the teams that we're working with right now. And we listen and we're, we're, we're trying to make sure that we're in line with what the community wants. The other thing I would say is, again, a lot of new people are coming into the sport who don't know anything. And, and I think it's incumbent on all of us to try to help them navigate this as well. Uh, and I've talked about this with some of the race directors. You know, we had a gal who um, we did a, a expo booth at Rock and Roll Las Vegas, and we did it again this year, did it in 23, did it in 22. A gal in 22 spun the wheel and won an entry to Speed Goat, right? So this is, think about rock and roll. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those races, but, you know, I don't know what, what the... Um, the right thing that will offend somebody to say is, but I've heard jolly jogger, right? You know, someone standing at the start line, two fisting it with beers and they want to hear music on their run, right? They want to see these bands out there. And so one of these folks wins an entry to Speed Goat, right? So imagine the, imagine the juxtapose those two events, right? Rock and Roll Las Vegas on the strip, heading over to Speed Goat with, um, so she entered the 10K at Speed Goat, 1500 feet of elevation, took her four hours to get around the course, right? And we were getting calls from the volunteer and the sweeps and they were like, oh my God, is this ever gonna end? You know, and I'm like, oh, this is gonna be interesting. I need to go down there because she's probably not gonna be real happy. And she crossed the line and said, that was the best running experience I've ever had in my life. Mm. And, and when I hear that and see that, I'm like, those are the people we want. That's the people we wanna get out there um, and, and experience what all the rest of us have had the good fortune to experience. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I understand it. We don't know everything, but we are trying to learn and we are trying to, you know, I don't know, trying to understand, you know, what, what it is that we need to do to do right by this community. And I think we're, we're learning that every day and we're, we're trying to do that again on the ground at the races. I don't hear and see any negativity. I feel like everybody is having a great time. Um, I'm sure I'll get an email from somebody who goes, I didn't have a great time at whatever race, but yeah. So I don't know if that answers the question. It was a long winded way of. It does. I, I, I appreciate the humility and, um, I empathize with it actually, because, uh, one of the, one of the most frequent, um, responses I get to this show is, you know, something along the lines of. Finn, you know, you're an idiot. You don't know shit. You got this wrong. You got this right. And I, and my response is just like you said, you're right. And like the, the more, the more I learn about this sport and, you know, cause I've been in it since 2016. So I'm on kind of that weird edge of like new entrant kind of becoming a veteran. Um, the more, but the more I learned, the more I realize I don't know Jack. And, uh, that's why I'm on this side of the mic asking questions because <laughs> I just see this single track thing as sort of being, uh, a forever, uh, educational pad for me to keep learning. No, it is. And it is for all of us, all, all of you, all of you guys, all of you men and women who are doing podcasts and, and writing in the magazines and, you know, from Myron Farr to all of it. Right. Um, it, it helps all of us to learn. But it's interesting you say that because I'm sitting here talking to you and going, I, I know a little bit of what you've done. I know you're through hiking. I know some of the stuff you've done in the east and the northeast. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. this guy's no joke. You know, he's the real deal. And, and you're sitting there going, yeah, I don't really know anything. I'm kind of new. I've been around since 2016. But I, I understand that, too, because I've heard some of the interviews you've done with some of the people 
amazing people who, you know, are part of this, this sport. Uh, the, the one other thing I would say is, and this, this really struck me back in the day in, in Ironman, I think when you get to a point in a sport where you feel like you have some experience and you, you almost feel like you have some level of ownership and say in how things should go, right? And I really felt strongly about that in Kona, you know, because that possessed me for so many years of my life. And, you know, when we, you know, the, that race went through a number of different race directors and I always felt like I needed to, to pull them aside and go, Hey, don't make sure you don't screw this up. And, you know, you know, Kona is this and Kona is that. And, and at, at a certain point I went, who do you think you are? You know, to myself, I'm like, you're, you're one person along the way. And yeah, it's good to feel that level of ownership and wanting everything to be done the right way, but things are going to change. And all we are in, you know, in my opinion, are temporary stewards of whatever facet of life that we're involved in. And so I really try and, I mean, I'm, who knows how long we're all involved with anything, but, um, you know, just trying to make a positive impact in the time that we have and not, not trying to feel like I, you know, I, I'm, I'm this or I'm that, and this is how it should be. It's like, it should be how it is for anybody who's doing it and how they want to experience it, you know, within reason, of course, I'm not saying trash things, but, but do you, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's very temporary, right? And, and you, don't, you don't know it's temporary, I mean, where this sport will be in five years from now or 10 years from now, I'm guessing is going to be very different than what it is right now. And I, I, I'm guessing for some people, it will be so much better and so much more fun. And others, it will be like, man, I, I'm glad I was there in the good old days. Yeah. Okay. Two questions left, I promise. And then we'll close up. <laughs> it's no problem. Uh, one, one, one more business question. I should have asked this earlier. And again, yeah. a, a lot of the ways that I interview things just kind of pop up and they're out of order and I feel compelled to ask, but like no, no you were saying earlier that, you know, there's, there's 40 events worldwide. There are six here in North America. And in a lot of ways that does, um, pale in comparison to other organizations out there that have a bigger yeah. roster of stuff. Yeah. But, and I've also heard, you know, UTMB Ironman say that now that we're at this place, we're going to enter into this like quote unquote, stable state stabilization phase. It's less about growth. And when I read, I think I read it, when I read it, my first thought was like, that seems to defy the logic of a lot of companies where like, if you, ha especially if you have shareholders, uh, you kind of have to grow like gangbusters and to go to like your board of directors and say, actually, like, we're not trying to capture as much demand as possible. Actually, we're not trying to capture as much market share as possible. They would probably like revolt at that. So, um, <laughs> Talk about why, you know, we are actually at the start of a, a stabilization phase for Ironman and less so like this, uh, you know, growth phase. I'm not sure I know the answer to that. I, aside from I, I can only foresee what I can foresee in the next five years. And I feel like with the events that we have globally, we have started to get to the point where we have decent, um, we have the ability for runners in a lot of geographic areas to qualify for and get to Chamonix. Um, but I, I, that doesn't mean I don't think there's still plenty of room for, for growth. But like I said, if, if it's a couple of races a year, yeah, you know, in North America, I think that would get us geographically where we want to be in three to five years, probably five years. 
And again, that's assuming we could do two a year, right? It's, there's no guarantee that you can find communities or other events that are interested in, in being a part of this. Um, I would say Asia probably is a huge growth opportunity. Uh, so I just think of it in, in geographic terms. But in terms of your question, yeah, I guess you're, you're right in terms from a shareholder point of view. Yeah, you, we definitely do want to grow. So I can just tell you what, what I feel and know for, you know, this, this end of things. Well, Paul, it's, I mean it when I say, um, I really appreciate you being here. It's been a pleasure. I've certainly learned a lot. I'm glad that, you know, well, I, I appreciate you just, you know, answering a lot of these, uh, tougher questions head on. And, you know, I, I think to the audience, one thing I would want to say is regardless of where you sit on this issue, I think we should all appreciate people that are in the arena and unequivocally trying to make it better. Um, Paul, even if we have differences of opinion, I, I do believe you are one of those people. And so I, I applaud your work. Um, I always like to give guests sort of the final word. Is there any parting message or, or, or calls to action that you want to leave people with before we go? Yeah, I was going to say just run, but that would be way too, too trite and cliche. I, I guess I would just say if you have if you have questions or want to talk, I, I'm happy to talk. And maybe I'm putting myself out there too much. Um, but I, I think you know this. And I, I, I want to say I appreciate you and everyone who covers the sport, because I think that's how a sport grows more than anything. You know, the Bob Babbitts of the world and the Finn Melansons of the world really make a difference in the overall growth of a sport. And I think that's important. I also thank you for <laughs> taking my texts and emails you know, when I feel compelled to, um, to correct something, it, it's definitely, it's not out of anything other more than wanting to, um, make sure that there's the correct information out there. 